This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Science Notes, a program on Otago Access Radio, brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorrin, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 till 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. Well, good evening and welcome to Science Notes for another week. My name is Dave McMorrin and we find ourselves still in now level three lockdown in New Zealand, which means that whilst um, we can go and get uh, our coffees and our, our danishes from cafes, we're not really back at work in the same way. And so um, the students are still away and I'm here by myself. So tonight I'm going to talk about um, the work that um, was the basis of the 1925 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. But before we get into that, um, some music. And our music for tonight comes from the American singer-songwriter John Grant. Later we'll hear a track called Sigourney Weaver. But first, a track called Where Dreams Go to Die, off the album Queen of Denmark. Your confidence unspeakable I know you know, I know you know But I know that you know I'm willing to do anything To get attention from you, dear Even though I don't have any is like a well-oiled machine Could I please see that smile again It's all that makes me feel that I am living in this world I see you closing all the doors I see the walls as they go up I know it's what you have to do Probably do the same thing to my dear
your part, my dear. I've written it all down for you. It doesn't matter if the things you say to me are true. Just do it, then I'll let you go. Just say the words and say them slowly. I promise I'll tell no. Yes, I crossed my heart and hoped to die. Baby, you wear dreams gonna die. I regret the day your lovely carcass caught my eye. Listen to Science Notes on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM. To start, let me ask you a question. What do paint, smoke, and stained glass windows have in common? The answer is, is that they are all examples of something called a colloid. In a chemical sense, a colloid is a mixture of two different things, which looks to the naked eye like it's just one thing. 
The two different things can be in the same phase, as a chemist would say, that is a liquid mixed with a different liquid, or it can be a mixture of things in different phases. For example, a solid mixed with a liquid. Normally, there is more of one thing than the other. And we say that the thing that there is less of is called the dispersed phase, while the thing that there is more of is called the continuous phase. And, like I say, either of these things can be a solid or a liquid or a gas. Except, of course, that there are no gas-gas colloids. Let's imagine putting some dirt into a jar of water and shaking this up. We get muddy water. But if you let this stand, then quite quickly you will see that the grains of dirt start to sink to the bottom. This is because the particles are big. So big that if you look closely, or certainly look at them under a microscope, you can see the particles floating around. This means that muddy water is not a colloid. A colloid is like the muddy water in one respect. It can be water with a bunch of particles floating around in it. The difference is in the size of the particles. In a colloid, the particles are typically less than one-tenth of a millimetre and can be as small as one-ten-thousandth of a millimetre. This means that they are too small to see with the human eye, and often too small to see under a normal microscope. And because they are so small, colloid particles don't necessarily sink to the bottom of the container in the way that the dirt particles do, because while the gravity is still pulling them down, the water molecules can be pushing them back up. The water molecules are always moving around very quickly, and because the colloid particles are so small, the water molecules can have enough energy to keep them suspended in the solution. I like to think about this process as being like volleyball. The colloid particle is the ball, and the players are the water molecules. Gravity makes the ball fall down but the players keep the ball from doing so. It is important to note that while these colloid particles are very small, they are still much bigger than molecules. We generally think of colloids as large groups of molecules stuck together, and so they represent an interesting in-between situation, not individual molecules, which are normally a chemist's stock and trade but not, to use the chemistry phrase, a bulk material either. If we take a sugar cube and put it in water, it dissolves to give individual sugar molecules swimming around in the water. This is different to what is going on with colloids. An everyday example of this is milk. Milk is a colloid where the continuous phase is water, and the dispersed phase is fat. While we know that fat and water don't mix, because the little blobs of fat in the milk are so small, the water molecules can keep them suspended, and so the milk appears as a single white liquid 
rather than a mixture of things. Although we should note that colloidal suspensions need not be opaque, like the milk is, it depends on the size and the makeup of the particles. But the fact that the colloid particles are too small to see means that, for a long time, scientists didn't really know what to make of these sorts of colloidal systems, like milk. The person who was first able to show that they were indeed tiny particles suspended in a continuous phase was Richard Adolf Zygmondi. Zygmondi was born in Vienna in 1865. His mother was a poet, and his father, who died when Richard was only 15, was a scientist who had also invented instruments for dental surgery. The family shared a love of education and the outdoors. One of his brothers went on to become a dentist, one a mathematician, and one a doctor, and two of them were well-known mountaineers. After high school, Richard went to study initially at the medical school at the University of Vienna. Then he moved to the Technical University of Vienna, and later to the University of Munich, reflecting his changing interests. He completed a PhD in organic chemistry at Munich in 1889. After a period of continued research in organic chemistry, in 1897, Zygmondi took a job at the Schott Glass Factory, which was based in Jena in Germany. There he worked on something called ruby glass, a red-coloured glass, also known as cranberry glass, that had been known since the 4th century AD. It was known that it was prepared by mixing gold chloride into the glass during the manufacturing process, but the exact recipe was lost and only rediscovered in the 17th century. And even then, no one knew how the gold chloride made the glass red. It was Zygmondi who discovered that the red colour was not the result of individual gold atoms in the glass or of gold chloride molecules. It was due to particles containing hundreds of gold atoms, colloidal particles. The ruby glass was an example of a colloid where the dispersed phase is a solid, the gold, and the continuous phase, the glass, is also a solid. Or is it just a very, very viscous liquid? Maybe we'll leave that debate for another show. In fact, many of the colours that we see in the stained glass windows in cathedrals are gold colloids. The different colours result from the different sizes of the gold particles used. Sigmondi left Schott in 1900, but stayed in Jena to teach and do research on colloids. At that time, Jena was a world centre for optical technology and Zygmondi soon teamed up with scientists at the Zeiss Company, now Carl Zeiss AG, to build what he called an ultra-microscope. This was different to a normal microscope in that, rather than shining light through a sample and into the objective, 
the objective was placed at 90 degrees to the light source so that the user saw the light dispersed or reflected off the particles. In this way, the very small colloid particles could be seen more easily and studied. And in this way, Sigmondi was able to prove that colloids were indeed tiny particles. And for this work, which may not seem that important to us now, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1926. Even though it was the 1925 prize, it wasn't awarded until the following year. And if I'm honest, I don't quite understand how that happened as yet. While colloids may seem to be the sort of thing that only a scientist would get excited about, and things that are of little or no importance to normal people, let me finish by giving you two quick examples of how, in fact, an understanding of colloids is of more importance than you might think. Once Singbondi showed that colloids are tiny particles dispersed in a continuous phase, like water, people then turned their attention to what caused these to be stable. For example, milk, as we have seen, is a colloid, but we also know that if you keep a bottle of milk for too long, then the fat starts to separate out from the water. The separation of the fat particles from the water suggests that something that was initially keeping the fat particles dispersed and separated from each other has stopped working. That is, the colloid has destabilized. And it turns out that sometimes you want to stabilize colloids, like milk, but sometimes you want to destabilize them. Remember my volleyball analogy. While the players are very skilled at keeping the volleyball in the air during the rallies, what if we double the size of the volleyball? Or make the ball 10 times bigger? At some point, the ball will get so big and heavy that the players will not be strong enough to prevail against gravity, and the ball will fall to the floor. And this is what happens when colloids destabilize. The particles stick together and become too big for the water molecules to keep them suspended. If you want to stop this happening, then one way is to make the surfaces of the particles repel each other. This is what we do when we make mayonnaise. If you vigorously shake vinegar, which is mostly water, with olive oil, then you will get a mixture of tiny bubbles of the oil dispersed through the water. But these will quickly join to each other again and give you a single layer of oil sitting on the top of the water. This isn't a stable colloid. But if you want these bubbles of oil to stay separated, then you add an egg yolk, because the egg yolk contains a molecule called lecithin. This long molecule has an oily end, which embeds itself into the tiny oil bubbles, and then the other end is charged. It gives the surface of each of the oil bubbles a charge, and because the charge on each of the bubbles will be the same, and because like charges repel, the bubbles cannot stick together. The colloid 
is stabilized. One place where you might want to destabilize colloids is in water treatment plants. Here in Dunedin, the water which ends up coming out of our taps starts off having a brown color due to colloidal particles which come from the vegetation in the catchment where the water is collected from. While these are not dangerous, they do not make the water as appealing as it could be. So we can use our understanding of the properties of colloids to work out how best to cause these particles to stick together until they are big enough that they can be filtered out of the water. The colloid particles initially in the water already have charges, normally negative charges, on their surfaces, which stops them sticking together. One way to neutralize these charges is to change the pH of the water, either by adding carbon dioxide gas to make the solution more acidic, or by adding lime to make it more alkaline. Another option is to add something called a coagulant. This can either be something with the opposite charge to that on the particles, positively charged aluminium ions, for example, which can, in effect, neutralize the repulsions between the particles. Or it can be a molecule with lots of long arms, which stick to the surface of the particle. When two particles then get too close to each other, they stick as the long arms get entangled. All of these are options used in the treating of the drinking water here in Dunedin and in plants around the world. Other examples of colloids in your life are foams, like shaving foam and whipped cream, aerosols, like hairspray, emulsions, like hand creams, and soles, like paints and inks. The study of colloids in the traditional sense has perhaps moved out, has perhaps moved out of the lab and into the factory, but as a result, colloids are everywhere. The citation for Zygmondi's Nobel Prize says, The Nobel Prize in Chemistry, 1925, was awarded to Richard Adolf Zygmondi for his demonstration of the heterogeneous nature of colloid solutions and for the methods he used, which have since become fundamental in modern colloid chemistry. I suspect that when the Nobel Committee decided to give the Chemistry Prize to Richard Zygmondi, they had no idea of how important his work would actually become. Like the one you would find in the twilight zone And I feel just like Sigourney Weaver 
Science Notes, a program on Otago Access Radio, brought to you by the Science News and Promotion Group at the University of Otago. Join me, Dave McMorrin, as I chat with graduate science students. We'll find out about their research, why they do science at all, and what music they enjoy. Science Notes, Thursdays from 6.30 till 7pm, only on Otago Access Radio. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.